0: Good morning. <sighs> what a week, huh? Yeah? Yeah. Well, I just know, as a pastor, I was uh, at a hard time when something happened during the week and nobody said anything about it on Sunday, you know, and so I couldn't get up here and not say something. Um, I just want to take a second, you know, in terms of the decision that was made this past week to overturn Roe versus Wade, I... I have no business wading in to how you should think or feel about that, right, or what your political uh, view should be on that. To be honest with you, mine are complicated, They're really complicated, right? So that's that's not my lane, right, as your pastor. But I wanted to make sure you know something is I'm available to you. You know, if you're here uh, and you're hurt, you're upset or whatever, you're confused, uh, I'm here, I'm available, right? If you're here and you're confused why other people are upset, I'm here for you too. Right? I'm available to that. But the one thing I want to do this morning, though, is just take a second and encourage all of us to avoid simple reactions. Simple reactions. You know, for those of us in the room, this seems like an obvious, like a good thing, right? Something to 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 celebrate. My challenge to you is don't just gloat about it. Be gentle. Be gentle. And even more than that, be curious. Like, like make an effort to learn about why some people are taking this so hard like why this is difficult for them, the reasons they have for that, take a second, get, get curious about that. And not just the reasons that you're told by, you know, people on your side. Actually take a second and, 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 and get to know where, where they're coming from. Same time, if you're here, if you're hurt, or if you're confused, you're angry, I just wanna challenge you to resist the urge to react from that place. I'm not saying you can't feel your feelings. That's not what I'm saying. But What I'm asking you is, don't retreat to your echo chamber. Right? Don't withdraw. Stay in the conversation. Stay engaged. And here's the, this is the thing, I, the truest thing I know. Is that no matter where we sit on this, this issue, for far too long the church has just had opinions and judgments about all of it. But the women who are impacted need way more than that. They need presence. My hope is that crisis pregnancy centers across the country are flooded with support. Financial support, volunteer support, that's what needs to happen more than anything. It's, what, it's what's needed to happen all along, is that the church just doesn't need to just tell everybody what they think. They need to show up for people who need it, right? And so I just want to call all of us just to resist the urge to hate, resist the urge to bully, to gloat, to cancel. Nothing good has ever been brought into the world because of any of that. Nothing good. Nothing good. The only way we get anywhere worth getting to is if we stay human, is if we stay together. Amen? Let me pray for us. Man. God, I'll be honest. If I knew the last two and a half years were going to be like this, I might have thought twice about becoming a pastor. But Lord, what I know is this, this has been hard for people for a lot longer two and a half years. And just some of the things that we've had to drag up and confront about ourselves. There have been things that have been true all along things that have been uh, needing to be confronted and, and, and addressed and dealt with for far too long and so Lord I do I do thank you for the fact that that's um, happening in some hard and ugly ways but it's happening and Lord I just ask that you help us as your church to do what you've always wanted us to do. And that show people what it means to be human, like really human. The kind of humans that you've called us and created us to be. So Lord, help us to do that. I pray for all of us, Lord, if there's if there's things that we've pledged our allegiance to that, that aren't of your kingdom, Lord, we repent of that. I pray, Lord, that that the person and the work and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus wouldn't just be something that we we pay homage to a couple of times a year, but it will be where we get our life from. It's where we take our cues from. That Jesus isn't just a bumper sticker. But Jesus really is our pattern. It's our Lord, our Savior. Because I think the world needs to see that now more than ever. And Lord, give us wisdom to know what that next right thing is to do as your church. And then give us the courage to follow through on that. And more than anything, I pray that we will always, always be a place for people who are hurting people who feel scared, people who feel like they don't have anywhere else to go. We want to be the place they have to go. We love you so much. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. So I'm going to tell you right now, I love passages like this. Didn't Jerry do a good job? I'm you, I think we need to fiddle and we need Jerry every weekend. Wouldn't you agree? That'd be worth coming to, right? But I love passages like this. Let me tell you why. Because typically, when I'm working on a sermon, I got to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get you interested, how to like pique your curiosity. But passages like this, and they got phrases and words like "mutilators of the flesh," circumcision. There's a word that'll get your attention, right? I feel like you're already somewhat interested. Are you interested in this passage? Oh, wow, that's convincing. It's great. For just now joining us, we've been spending our time on Sunday mornings working through the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians is actually a letter, right? It's a letter written by this guy named Paul. He's in prison in Rome, and he's writing to some friends in the city of Philippi who are a part of a church that he helped to start. Now, up to this point, the letter, for the most part, has been really upbeat and encouraging. He's proud of the Philippians. He's, he's challenging them on a few things, and more than anything, they're, they're doing pretty well, right? Uh, they're, they're getting it, and, and he's proud of them for that. But here in chapter 3... Just for a moment, Paul seems pretty fired up. He's, he's sort of charged about something, right? Chapter 3 begins with Paul saying, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you, Paul. So this is evidence that Paul has written to them before, right? I got no problem writing to you the same things. He's already been in correspondence with them. Preachers love this line. Paul's like, I got no problem repeating myself. Right? I got no problem reminding you of things. I love hearing that. Because there's sometimes as a preacher, my job isn't to tell you something new and interesting. It's to remind you of something you maybe forgot. So I got no problem repeating myself. I might even do some of that this morning. Right? But, then, but then we get this three-part warning from Paul. Watch out for those dogs. In the Greek, it's D-A-double-G. W-G, yeah, Dogs. Those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, 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 coming to theaters everywhere this summer, right? For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. What in the world is this all about, right? Paul doesn't elaborate much on what he's talking about because he didn't have to. Back then, his audience would have known exactly what he was talking about us? Though, it's like, what is what is this circumcision business all about? What are you talking about? Now, thankfully, we can get some more insight into all of this from other places in the New Testament, particularly from Acts chapter fifteen. If you're taking notes, Acts fifteen, and really the whole book of Galatians. All right, Paul talks a lot about this. If you want to go and research it uh, yourself, but here's the deal: the first Christians, like the first people who signed up to be a part of the Jesus movement, were mostly, if not totally, all Jewish. People who grew up, grew up with Jewish customs and traditions, that was their sort of way of life. And so circumcision was a part of that. Young people, if you don't know what circumcision is, just ask your parents and do it over lunch. It'll be a great conversation today, right? Just don't Google it, okay? No images, at least. So, so it started as pre- predominantly Jewish, but, but once the, the faith began to sort of spill over into the Gentile world, which is the word the Bible uses to talk about everybody else who's not Jewish, Right, so it's kind of simple. You had Jewish people and you had Gentiles. Gentiles, everybody else who wasn't Jewish. So as the faith began to move into the Gentile world, you had all of these people, though, who weren't familiar with this, who didn't grow up with all these customs and traditions. I mean, There are people who are who captivated by, by the person and the teaching and the story of Jesus, and they're like, sign us up for that. But in terms of the Jewish tradition, the law, the teaching, all of that, they, they were completely unfamiliar with all that. And so apparently there was this group of Jewish Christians who would sort of like follow Paul around as he would start these churches. And they would go into these sort of Gentile communities and be like, great, it's awesome. You're down with this whole following Jesus thing. Same here. We're on board too. But there's this thing. Have you all been circumcised yet? And they would be None of your business. But they'd be like, no, no, of course not. Like we didn't, we didn't, and they'd be like, of course you didn't. You didn't grow up with this, right? You're not familiar with what this is sort of all about. Well, see, it's going to have to happen. You're going to have to go ahead and do that. It's this thing we do on Tuesday nights. You just come over, bite down hard on a towel. It takes about an hour, right? I mean, they would tell them, unless you do this, it's like you're only halfway there. You know, it's great that you're following Jesus, but there's something else you got to do. If you want to be right with God, if you want to be saved, if you want to be in, then you're going to need to get circumcised, and you're to need to also commit to all of our other dietary laws. You're only halfway there. Sort of the things they were saying to people who are coming from the Gentile world. Now, keep in mind, circumcision is something that's supposed to happen when you're like a few days old. Right? And so you're just not, your brain's not fully awake yet. You're not going to remember that. You're coming to adults. You can see why this maybe had been a difficult thing for for folks to grasp. If you're a full grown man and they're telling you, hey, if you want to be in, you also got to get snipped, right? You could see where this would be a challenge. And this fired Paul up. This is basically what the whole book of Galatians is about. You know, most of the time, sort of Paul starts his letters off with these nice greetings, and that one's, he's like, I'm just. I am flabbergasted by y'all because they got sort of sucked into this, the Christians that were there. The non-Jewish Christians there, they, they gave into the pressure of this group and they went through with it. And Paul, I mean, he gets fired up. At one point in time, he even says, you know, to all of these folks who are pushing the circumcision thing, I wish they would just go all the way and just emasculate themselves. If you don't know what that is, ask your parents again. There you go. I'm giving y'all just some great conversation for lunch. I had a friend tell me this past week, he thinks the book of Galatians is like the book that Paul wrote after he had like a bottle and a half of wine. He's just like, he's just saying whatever he wants, like how he really, how he really feels. But see, a big part of Paul's problem is that these Jewish Christians, what they're doing is they're setting up unnecessary roadblocks for the Gentile people to say yes to the grace of God. They're, they're making it harder in all of the wrong ways for people on the outside of the family of God to be brought inside. They're taking the Jew, Jesus movement in the entire wrong direction. In fact, he has some fun with some wordplay here. right? When he calls them dogs, he calls these Jewish Christians who are you know, pushing circumcision, he calls them dogs. right? Which is funny because that was the word that Jewish people would use to refer to Gentiles. And see, dogs in the first century aren't like what we think of, cute, sweet, fun, cuddly. No, they were vermin back then. So this is their way of sort of looking down on them, these unclean people, these unenlightened people. They're dogs, right? And Paul's calling the Jewish Christians dogs. right? He refers to them as the the evildoers. That's because most Jewish Christians, uh, the the Jewish people in his day, they, they actually called themselves the good works people. We're the people who are, who are working with God to, to make the world right. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh, which is just great. You know, and this is really funny. It's a play on word. So the Greek word for circumcision is paratome, means to cut around. makes sense, right? Well, the word he used here is katatome. means to cut to pieces. He's having some fun here. He's being a little snarky. But basically what he's saying is these, these folks think they're the answer to the problem. But they're really just, they're the problem. They think they're the ones who are supposed to come and fix everything. They're not fixing it. They're making it worse. They're taking the Jesus movement in the entirely wrong direction. And for Paul, in a real practical sense, what he was seeing is that that this sounds silly to us, right? But in Paul's day, this was serious, and it was leading to some very nasty divisions in the church. Because the circumcised group saw themselves as superior to the uncircumcised group. I mean, there's instances they wouldn't even eat with each other. They wouldn't be in the same house together. And Paul understood that central to what God was up to in and through Jesus was getting rid of all of the ways in which we divide ourselves unnecessarily. All the ways in which we understand our goodness over and above somebody else's wrongness. Central to what God is up to in Jesus is getting rid of all of that, is putting that to death. See, for Paul to buy into this, was to completely miss what God was up to in Jesus. But at the heart of the gospel, the good news about Jesus is grace. Y'all say grace. Grace. I mean, the gospel declares that what saves us, what rescues us, right, what makes us whole, it's not our movement towards God, but it's God's movement towards us. Salvation, life with a capital L. It's not something we earn. It's not something we achieve. It's not something we prove. It's something we receive. It's already offered to us. We have to accept it. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 9 when he talks about a righteousness that isn't our own, but it's given to us by God, and it's experienced through faith. Faith is essentially about trusting acceptance. That's what it is. Faith is about accepting our acceptance. It's about coming to the terms of the fact that God loves us, period. God's always loved us. That's some of my problems sometimes with how it's often communicated. Like when you get saved, it's like at that moment, God changes his mind about you. It's like God hated your guts the whole time until you said some sort of prayer. No, I don't think that's what it is. I think when we come to that place of trusting acceptance, we're accepting what's been true the whole time, that God has always loved you. God has always been for you. That's been true the whole time. And so when we have faith, what we're doing is we're finally going, okay, I'm going to accept that. I'm going to accept my acceptance. I mean, maybe you know something about this. Maybe you know, maybe you know this too. But, but when grace gets a hold of you, like when it really gets a hold of you, when it gets up on the inside, when it forms your identity, when it, when it shapes how you understand God, how you relate to other people, one of the things that it does is it takes away your need and your ability to understand your rightness over and against somebody else's wrongness. And when grace messes you up, you just can't do that anymore. It's like that old bear joke. Remember that bear joke? It's like two friends are in the woods camping. like, one of them sees this angry bear charging at them a while way off, and they're like, we got to make a run for it. So one friend just starts running, right? The other friend stops and takes off the hiking shoes, pulls out some running shoes out of their book bag, puts on the shoes, starts stretching, right? And the friend who's already running looks back and says, you can't outrun a bear. And the friend says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. But this is often how we do it, isn't it? The reason why we like to look down on people and judge them, point out their flaws, because for some reason it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Man, you know, when you can look down on somebody, it means you're not the shortest person in the room. That's what judgment's all about. Judgment is about ascribing worth to ourself at somebody else's expense. It's about understanding our rightness over and against somebody else's wrongness. But listen, when grace gets a hold of you, when it, when it really thoroughly saturates your life and it, it becomes a lens through which you understand everything, the way in which you understand God, what you realize is that God isn't some angry bear chasing you to begin with. It's not somebody you have to run from or prove yourself to. What's offered to us in Jesus is it's grace. It's, it's acceptance. This isn't just a word for first century Christians, though, is it? Man, we need to hear this. It's alive and well today. I mean, the spirit of this is also why we love cable news so much. It's popular. You tune in, you get the buzz, don't you? You get that sort of buzz from it all for being a part of the right crowd, the smart ones, the enlightened ones, the ones who get it. Right? And that that other group, they're the problem. They're the lost ones. They're the ones destroying America, the ones we got to hate. I'm not saying that we don't have to have different opinions and disagree about some things. We don't have to dehumanize people. And that's where we're at nowadays. We demonize folks who don't see things the way that we do. I mean, that's like a few weeks ago. I'll just say it. A few weeks ago, we were talking about our phronesis. Remember this, Paul's word for phronesis, and it's our mindset. It's the lens through which we sort of see the world. And that, for us as Christians, man, the person and the teaching and the work of Jesus is meant to be our phronesis. It's how we see everything. And I challenged us. I said, "You can't, you can't commit to that if you're not familiar with it, right?" I mean, and 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 I called out how a lot of us we spend more time taking our cues from our favorite partisan news source than we do Jesus. And I used a certain person by name. Do you remember this? Tucker Carlson. Remember that? I mentioned his name. Now, this is true. We do it on both sides. But here's my point. I brought up his name. That challenged some of you, and I'm okay with that. That's my job. Step on your toes, right? But at the same time, if you're in the room and you hear me say that name, and there's a part of you that goes, "Mm." I'm not saying you aren't grateful for the fact that somebody said it. There's a different sort of feeling in there. We can also get a weird satisfaction when we feel like somebody's getting it stuck to them. You know what I'm talking about. That sort of thing that wells up in us and goes, mm. whatever that is, that's the thing Jesus wants to save us from. That thing in us that needs somebody else to suffer, that needs somebody else to hurt. Like that's how we feel good about it. That's the thing that Jesus wants to drag up and deal with. That's the thing that God wants to rescue us from. I hope I say things that tick you off. I do. But I also hope that when you find yourself feeling good about the fact that you know there's some people in the room listening that are hurt, I hope Jesus rescued you from that too. Because that's, that's what grace does. Y'all still with me? You want to leave? Too bad we locked the doors. But I am just going to say, it, Christians can be the worst at this. We really can. Like I think about all the ways We divide ourselves. Like different views over what the Bible is, different views over what baptism is about or communion. I mean, we look down at other groups who don't do it the way that we do it because they're not the real deal. Right? Do you dunk? Do you sprinkle? Right? Do you baptize babies or don't you? Like, we, we, it's not just a difference of opinions. Our belief is that they're wrong and we're right. We're the real Christians, they're, they're the fake ones. They haven't been circumcised yet. It's the same daggum thing. I mean, did you know that more Christians were killed by other Christians? In the decades after the Protestant Reformation over theological differences, they were killed by the Roman Empire. Did you know that? We killed more of our own over disagreements about Jesus, the one who died. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. At all. Paul says in Galatians chapter five, verse six. this is remember, that's the whole book he's dealing with this. This is what he says, Galatians five verse six, "For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love." Wow, What a verse. You know, since starting the church, people get interested, and they'll come to me, and this doesn't happen as much, but early on it was like, "Yeah, I'm interested, but what's your doctrine? What are your doctrines? And I'd be like, well, I mean, we affirm the Creed, the Apostles' Creed. It's been around since like you three know, hundreds we affirm that. That's not enough. I gotta know what are your specifics about baptism? What do you believe about sexuality? What do you believe about the Bible? What are the specifics? What do you believe about those? I'm just like, I kind of just want to say what Paul said. You know what I mean? All that counts is faith expressing itself through love. All that counts is entrusting yourself to the saving love of God offered to you in Jesus Christ and then committing to his cross shaped way of life. If you're on board with that, we got a seat for you. Everything else we can disagree over. I mean, people push on all these things. Like, like the Bible's a big one right now. It's almost made to seem it's a new circumcision. Like, what do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe it's inerrant, infallible, without error, right? That's the thing that identifies you as a Christian. And they keep, what's your stance, pastor? What do you believe about it? Here's the thing. I've got opinions about all of it. I do. I've got perspectives and opinions about all of it. It's not that it doesn't matter. But I don't think it's what determines if you're a Christian or not. Because here's what I know. Everybody in this room, no matter what my stance was on the Bible, people sitting in this room, you would all have different opinions. Some of you think it's a fairy tale, and it's not even worth your time. Right? Some of you think it is inerrant, inspired, infallible. But here's the one thing. The fact that you're here means that we all agree that we should be learning from it we should be reading it and wrestling with it and applying it to our lives that's the thing that we have in common i mean christians can get this so messed up i remember hearing rob bell there's a name mentioned him oh heretic rob rob he and i if we sat down and talked about things he's a pastor if you don't know he's up in michigan if we sat down and talked about things we wouldn't agree on all of it we just wouldn't but i will tell you this that man has had a huge influence on my life. When I first got called to be a pastor, my pastor in Indiana, uh, loved the guy. He was awesome, but we just were nothing alike. He had a mullet before mullets were cool again, right? He wore like a lariat and cowboy boots and all of his sermons had like 55 points that all started with the same letter, right? And I love this guy, but I'm like, I'm feeling called to be a pastor and I don't. that's the only pastor I know. And I, don't, I don't really, that's not me. And then somebody like, Hey, have you ever checked out Rob Bell? And I'm watching his videos. And I'm like, dang, if you can be a pastor like that, then maybe this is something I can do. But I remember him teaching on this passage years ago. And he was talking about how he got invited to this breakfast and I had a whole bunch of different spiritual leaders from different traditions. The Dalai Lama was there. Bishop Tutu was there. They had like leading Muslim scholars from, from America. It was this big breakfast to just sit down and talk, to talk about, you know, the world and how we could maybe shape it better and, and, and be influenced by our different traditions. And so, you know, he's up there at one point in time talking with the Dalai Lama about the Christian practice of forgiveness and about how being a Christian, one of the things that we do is we forgive and it's hard, but we're willing to sort of take on that suffering and sacrifice of something good. It was incredible, right? And so he gets done and he's all excited about it. About his friends, like, man, did you hear there's a whole bunch of people outside protesting? He said, What? Who would protest this? Who's out there? And he said, They're Christians. <laughs> and then somebody said, Hey, have you seen online? You're getting roasted right now. You're getting crucified by all these people. They've got pictures of you sitting up there with the Dalai Lama, and they're just letting you have it. And I love what Rob Bell said. He said, Beware of those dogs. Christians will come to you and say that God has saving love for the whole world. But they won't even have breakfast with the nations. Beware of those dogs. I just want us to be a church who majors on the majors. Are you with me on that? I mean, is, are, are there differences difference of opinions that, yes, they're not, they're not trivial, they matter. But goodness gracious, when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I like how Paul said it. And circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. Here's what matters faith expressing itself in love. And if that makes me a heretic, Jesus was called one too. We'll just do it together, yeah? But I'm not even done. That's half the passage. We got time. I see you, Fran, texting me. What are you texting me about, Frank? Back off, bruh! Yet, yet. There's a personal part to this text that really hit me this this week, and let's just keep going at it. Paul goes on to say this if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's like, You wanna play that game? You wanna play that whole whole who's better game? You wanna put stock in your religiousness? I'll win. (laughs) You cannot compete. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of qualifiers, right? He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. To us, that stuff just sounds kind of weird, right? If you're like putting together your resume, you know, you're like listing off your, you know, your senior picture profile, you wouldn't list any of this stuff. It just seems sort of strange, but in Paul's world, this was a big deal. These, these are things you would brag about. I mean, Paul's day and age, he was a bit of a rock star. I mean, he studied under one of the most famous rabbis of all time, a guy named Gamaliel, And he dude is legendary. Paul studied under him, which means that he was identified as, as as bright and gifted and talented. He was on his way up. He had all sorts of authority, which usually means you also have, you've got wealth. I mean, Paul was essentially, I'm telling you, he was a rock star. And in this passage, Paul is essentially saying, I played that game. I made it. I arrived. It wasn't enough. It didn't do it for me. I counted all as loss. Later on, he says, I see all of it as skubalon. It's the Greek word. Closest thing you get to an expletive in the Bible. Trash. Refuge excrement is literally what it means it's garbage i did that i played that game i got all that i won it wasn't enough wasn't enough i remember a few years ago reading this article about aaron Rodgers. i know he's a bit of a polarizing figure Uh, trey dooley if you're watching this one's for you buddy big packers fan so aaron Rodgers, of course is the quarterback you know for the green bay packers He's considered right now to be maybe the most gifted quarterback in the league, maybe of all time, physically speaking, just what he can do with a football. But he's always had a big chip on his shoulder. You know, he was somewhat overlooked coming out of high school, wasn't seen as a big-star recruit. And even despite having a real successful career at Cal, he wasn't drafted right away. He slipped in the draft, and then he had to go and sit and be a backup to Brett Favre. Or Brett Favre, right? So when he finally got his chance, he threw himself into proving everybody wrong. He wanted to show them that he was great. And you know what? He did it. He did it. Super Bowl forty-five, Rodgers Packers beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Rodgers won the Super Bowl MVP that year. But there was this this, this article in ESPN the Magazine a while back, and it, it went behind the scenes to capture a bit of what was going through the quarterback's head after this huge win. Just listen to what it said. It's a really great article. It said, When the game against the Steelers ended, the team was showered with confetti. Then the players trudged down to the bus, where they sat for a while in the bowels of the stadium before heading back to their hotel. Someone brought the Vince Lombardi trophy on board, and the players passed it around like a collection plate, each taking a moment to palm the sterling silver. As his teammates chattered away, the quarterback sat and listened and thought about the plays he had made that night. Three touchdowns, zero interceptions, 304 yards. The bus rolled along and he ran it all back in his mind, then pressed re- rewind and visualized his entire career, retracing the steps that he had taken from Chico, California to Arlington, from beleaguered backup to Super Bowl MVP. As he reflected on the sacrifices and the slights, he wondered whether it was all worth it. And then he felt something unexpected, not regret. Or fulfillment, but a different sensation. Like a space had opened up inside of him. He thought about life and football and everything he had invested in his sport. And a jarring realization sprang into his mind. I hope I don't just do this. feel that? He's not the only one to say something like that. I remember a 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady. He said the same thing. Why is it that I got all these Super Bowl rings? And I'm like, this can't be it. There's got to be something else. Madonna. I've heard her say similar things. It's like all these people who have made it to where so many of us think life is. And they come back and they tell you it's not here. What you're looking for isn't here. Paul uses this word righteousness a lot. We could do a whole series on what he means by righteousness. There's all these different layers and angles to this word. On the one hand, it means right-relatedness. It's about having a right relationship with God, with ourselves, with other people. It also has something to do with faithfulness. It also has something to do with justice. It's this big, massive word. I like to think about it as okayness. Our okayness. I need being comfortable in your skin. I love the way the first humans are described in the creation poem as being naked and unashamed. They're just themselves. They got nothing to hide, nothing to prove. They're at peace. That's what righteousness is all about. According to Paul, the righteousness we long for, the okayness that we all long for, it's not something that we achieve, prove, accomplish. It's something that we're given. We're given that by God. See, we're hardwired to find that sense of okayness outside of ourselves. We are. You know, Oprah. You know Oprah, right? She interviews thousands of people. I remember her saying one time, there's one question everybody asks her as soon as the interview's over. Every single one of them. Presidents, right? Celebrities. She's interviewed murder. I mean, she interviews all these people, right? And every single one of them, as soon as the interview's over, you know what question they ask her? How'd I do? Was that okay? Was that good? Did I do good? What does that say about us? We long for that, don't we? For somebody to tell us that we're okay. For somebody to tell us that, that, that we're good. You see, we're hardwired to get that from outside of ourselves. That's the complete opposite. This is why I want to challenge pop psychology for a second. Because they tell us that we're, we don't need anybody. We're autonomous. Everything you need is inside yourself. And I'm like, I don't know. Myself doesn't always tell me good things about myself. I need God to speak that into me in a way that I can't ignore, in a way that I can't avoid, in a way that I have to trust. I know it sounds super trippy, but here's what I just want to say. That sense of righteousness that, that we long for, that okayness, it's something that God gives you. And that we have to come to trust. There's, there's this interesting thing that Paul does a couple of times in his writings. It's like where he, uh, like for instance, it happens in Galatians chapter 4. Paul's like rolling. He's getting into some of this really heavy stuff, serious stuff. And there's this moment when he sort of stops and he like corrects himself. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Galatians chapter four, verse eight. It's not on the screen, but just listen. Paul says, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, by nature, are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces?" Did you hear what he did? In verse nine. He does this in 1 Corinthians as well, but it's like he stops himself mid sentence and he corrects himself. But now that you know God, no, wait, excuse me. You can't ever really know God. God is way bigger than our ability to know. But once that you know that you're known by God, there's a difference there. Once you come to trust that you're known by God, that's the trick. It's about resting in the fact that we are known and we are accepted by God. Not that we know God. So it's sort of like my kids. You got three kids, right? What I'm realizing is my kids don't really know me. They know an aspect of me, right? They know me as their dad. But one thing's for sure, they aren't able to comprehend that I had a life before I was a dad. My daughter about flipped out the other day when she realized that Lindsay and I both dated other people, right before we met each other. It's like she thinks we were born out of the came into the world as parents, right? Like, she doesn't know everything about me. She knows bits and pieces about me. But, you know, goodness gracious, I know them. I know everything. It's memorized. The shape of their face. How they sleep. I know what scares them. I know what gets them excited. I know all of that. In fact, I would even say, I don't think it's always going to be like this, but right now, I would say I know them better than they know themselves, right? And they have this profound confidence in our relationship. They know that I'm going to be there, that I'm going to take care of them. They don't have to prove themselves to me. That doesn't come from them fully knowing me. It comes from me knowing them, them accepting that. I think the same is true with God. And being comfortable in our skin has everything to do with coming to see ourselves the way God sees us. And grounding ourselves in that. I found that when we get away from that, we tend to buy into one of three lies, don't we? Either I am what I do, I am what I have, or I am what other people think about me. Right? Those are the lies that we tend to buy into. The scariest thing about these lies is that they work until they don't. I mean, so many of us, we, we build our sense of self, our okayness around these three lies, and they work until they don't, right? So many of us, it's like, you know, we find out a little bit later that, man, new stuff is great, but eventually it becomes old stuff, and we want something else new, or we come to realize that people are fickle. They love you one minute, and they despise you the next, or success is awesome when we have it, but then when things don't go as planned, what happens then? You see, when, when these lies get the best of us, eventually what we're driven by is lack. We become more and more driven by all the things we've failed to accomplish, by all the things that we want but we don't have, or by all the negative stuff people have said or thought about us. All of that becomes the basis for how we live. Let me, I'm going to wrap it up with just a couple thoughts. Let me say this to you. This is something that you have to be converted to you do. I know some of you are sitting out there, probably if you're young, you're listening to this whole find your life in God thing, and you're like, yeah, whatever. I get it. I really do. I was there too. Somebody have to be converted to, and sadly, it often takes what they call a dark night of the soul. Anybody experienced one of those? When everything's not working for you, when all of your achievements and all your success is great, it's fun, but it's not there, you have to get to that place. For Paul, it was on his road to Damascus. He had one of those. You're going to have one, too. This is going to, to be something that you have to be converted to. And right now, I get it. You're blowing me off. That's fine. Just do me a favor. Tuck this away. Hold on to it. Because when you find yourself there, what I want you to know is that the way out of that place isn't working harder, trying more, proving yourself. No, it's going to come back to trusting and resting. Your life doesn't come from there. Your life comes from God. And not only do you need to be converted to it, it's something you've got to be reconverted to. Can I say amen on that? And I love the fact that Paul begins this passage. I got no problem reminding you of the same things over and over again. And for me, when I look back on my life, my journey as a Christian, you know what it is? It's really just a matter of being converted and reconverted to this over and over and over again. I remember the first big one for me was high school. And in high school, I, I found out that if I could prove myself in the weight room or on the football field, people would like me, and that felt good. I threw myself into that. By the time I graduated from my high school, I set every single strength record that school would ever have. And the last time I checked, I still had them all. Right? You don't have to clap for that. But that's what my, I was stronger than everybody. And I was strong. Squatted 700 pounds my senior year of high school. Homeboys got some quads, right? But guess what? I graduated and go to Purdue University with 36,000 people who do not care. They <laughs> don't care. All those shirts I got, you know, for all the weight room stuff, walking around, they don't care what that means. In fact, after a while, I didn't want to wear them around, you know, college because it didn't mean anything. Was, I had to find out who I was apart from that you see what I'm saying? I had to be converted to this. I remember my first significant relationship and heartache. Oh, man, is there anything worse than a breakup? It's horrible. But I was a guy that always got stuck in the friend zone. You know what I mean? Girls like you. Oh, we're just such great friends. Then I, 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 I thought to myself, if I could get somebody to pick me, somebody would pick me, I'll just be good, right? That happened. Then you go through a breakup, and you're devastated. I had to I'd discover, who am I apart from that? That can't be where I get my okayness from. Married people, we got to re- get reconverted to that after we get married, don't we? That loneliness doesn't go away on the other side of marriage. It just looks different. You can't expect that person to complete you. we got to be converted. and re- I got reconverted to it this past week. I was struggling with this message, y'all. I was. You want to know why? It's about stuff I've talked about before. How many times have you heard me talk about you got to get your okayness from God? Your life, you've heard me talk about this, right? And so Monday, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to talk about this again. I'm freaking out. I'm stressed. I'm anxious, right? And, and my wife can tell. She can tell that I'm like a mess. She said, Nick, I'm taking the kids. We're going to the pool. We're going to leave you here all day. I'll stay out late. You just figure this out. You know, you know what I did? Studied harder. I read more books. I listened to other people's sermons. To try. i got to find something interesting to say about this. What's the interesting thing to say? And I kept at it until really late until finally I heard his little voice go, this isn't what you need to do, is it? I started asking some questions. Why are you so anxious? Why does this matter so much to you? What I'm beginning to realize is I often get my okayness from being the guy who's got interesting things to say. And if I don't have something interesting, thing, interesting to say that you like and appreciate, then I'm not going to feel good about myself. Is that healthy? Because my job isn't to say something interesting to you. My job is to say what I feel like God wants you to hear. Amen. And that might not always be interesting. And so, hear this your life, your okayness, your righteousness, it can't come from what you have or don't have, it can't come from what you do or what you don't do or what other people think about you. You've got to get it from God. And we have to have a regular practice of coming back to that. A regular practice of coming back to that. Otherwise, We're going to be all over the place. Am I right? Can I pray for us? God, help us to come back to center, to come back to the truest thing that there is, is that you love us and you you accept us. Not because of how good we are or how successful we are, but despite all of that. Lord, I know is that when that really gets into us, like when that really gets into us, so much changes. Our need to prove our goodness up against other people's badness, that just doesn't make any sense anymore. Our need to prove ourselves by what we do or who, we, who or what we have, that just goes away too. And so I just pray for all of us in this room right now. Whatever it is that we need to hear and receive from you, Lord, just just drive it home. If we're here and we've been caught up in judgment and looking down on other people and pointing out their flaws, Lord, help us to realize that's because we actually haven't accepted your grace for ourselves. And that's what we need to do. I pray for anybody who here is in the middle of some significant disappointment. They're putting too much weight on something. They're asking something to do for them, only what you can do for them, and they're just severely disappointed. They got the lump in their throat, the pit in their stomach, and just remind them that you, you are where we get our life from. Help us to accept that, maybe for the first time. Maybe for another time, uh, we need to come back to it. Help us to do that. And I pray, Lord, that more than anything, we can be people who embody this grace, this truth. To everybody we interact with. That, Lord, we don't treat people as objects. We treat people as people. People in need of grace, too. That's who we want to be. We love you so much. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Church. Thank you for coming. So glad you're here. We'd love for you, uh, if you if you've watched online and you feel like this, this message moved you, if you wouldn't mind sharing it, we'd gra- gladly appreciate that. If you want to contribute to what God is doing here, you can do that on the way out in the giving boxes, or you can do it online by clicking that link. But thank you so much for coming, and we'll see you next week.